Hello and welcome. It's that time of year and we've got a Halloween special. I love Halloween. I love spooky stories. So I just thought, hey, this all sounds like a good excuse to me to switch it up. And I've got five short folk tales from around the world spanning several hundred years that I've rewritten for the podcast. Uh, Some of them will be a little bit more well-known than the others, but they're all, I hope, pretty true to the original core. So let's get straight into it. First up, we got a tale from Thailand named Maynak. The story itself is set in the 19th century, though when the story became ingrained in local legend is kind of a mystery more or less. But it's been retold over 20 films, I think, since 1959, and it's considered apparently to be the country's national ghost. So without further ado, this is the story of Maynak. Bangkok, Thailand in the 19th century was a far throw from the bustling metropolis we see today. In 1851, Mongkut, the Buddhist half-brother of Nongklao, took power and was known throughout the kingdom of Siam as Rama IV. Mongkut's father had placed him in a Buddhist temple in 1827 in order to avoid a bloody fight over succession. Death of his half-brother, the path was now clear for Mongkut to take the throne and he brought his leadership to the kingdom based on a foundation of Buddhist reform, influenced by his 27 years living in the temple. Between 1849 and 1855, Siam was fighting a border dispute with Burma, and many young men were drafted into the army to fight for their country. Mac, a young Thai man, recently married to his beautiful and devoted wife Nak, was one such draftee. The couple had married a year previous and lived in a small traditional wooden house on the banks of the river Prakanon, one of the several rivers that crept and wound through the dusty streets. The house was built in the traditional Thai fashion, perched two metres from the ground atop wooden stilts to prevent flooding from the river that flowed lazily past the row of homes that followed the riverbanks throughout the city. Nak had recently fallen pregnant and it was with a heavy heart that Mac left to serve his country forced to separate from his wife in this difficult yet exciting time for their new family. Not long into his service, however, Mac was badly injured. Fighting for his life, he was sent to Tombury to recover for several months. During this recovery, he was cut off from the world and progress was slow, but eventually his health returned and he was able to return to his home, discharged from further service. Upon his return, he found Nack and his newborn child and the family was united for the first time. Though he had missed the birth of his child, he was thankful that he now had the time to enjoy the early days of his son's life with his new family. Things were not all so smooth and easy going upon his return, however. Old friends seemed to avoid Mac in the street, and many would cast their eyes to the ground, shuffling past him, hastily eager to avoid conversation. His strange behaviour reached a head when several of his old friends gave him ominous and cryptic warnings about his wife. She was no longer the beautiful young girl he remembered, they said, and many told him he should leave her as soon as he could. Somewhat offended and absolutely perplexed by this change in attitudes towards his wife, he resigned to ignore the warnings, putting thoughts of infidelity whilst he was away far into the back of his mind. Nak had always been devoted and faithful to him, and he loved and trusted her. The men he assumed were simply jealous or 
Perhaps Nack had fallen out with some of the older local women and they had spread malicious rumours. The following days brought a darker doubt to Mac's mind, however, when the same men who had spoken out against Nack were found in their beds, brutally murdered. There were no clues as to who had killed them or why. Now people outright ignored Mac as he walked through the village. Though at home at least, life offered him a warm respite from the concerned nagging creeping through his mind. One warm summer's evening, as Nack sat on the porch of the house preparing chilli paste, Mac slipped out to the riverbank to make his ritual Buddhist offering. As he returned to the house, he was stopped dead in his tracks. He could scarcely believe what he was seeing. Nack sat on the porch, her arm outstretched and seemingly passing straight through the wooden boards of the porch, reached out the full two metres to the ground. In her hand, she had retrieved a lime that had slipped through the cracks in the wooden floor. As he gazed upon the scene, the colour crumbled away from his beautiful home. Vines grew up across the walls and the warmth faded from the house, replaced by dust and decay from months of abandonment. As he stepped onto the porch, the warm boards now creaking under his feet as he walked, he could see no trace of knack, just a single dried up lime, half chopped and lying next to a bowl of rotten chilli paste. Terrified and confused, Matt gathered some small belongings and rushed off to the local temple of Wat Mahabat. He spat his story as best he could at the Buddhist monks who took him into the temple and they sat him inside the ordination hall, encircling the chamber with white string to act as protection from evil spirits. Once his faculties returned, the head monk carefully and solemnly explained to Mac that his wife had died in childbirth whilst he had been away. With a look of regret, he lowered his head as he spoke softly. Your wife did not wish to leave you. Her spirit has remained and cast a powerful visage of your home so that you might never know of this tragedy. Mac had scarcely time to process the words from the monk and he was about to protest with stern disbelief when he saw the monk's eyes widen, focusing on the door to the ordnance hall behind him. He spun around where he sat to see the decomposed, desaturated image of his once beautiful wife staring back at him, unable to cross the line of string. She paced left and right for a moment before placing her hands onto the wall of the hall and began crawling up to the ceiling where she hung upside down, staring at the terrified congregation sitting in the centre of the hall. One of the elder monks stood and, gripping an earthen bottle, he commanded the spirit to the belly of the jar, stoppering it and sealing it with prayer. The jar vibrated in the monk's hand for a moment and then a calm stillness fell around the temple. The spirit of Nack had been subdued. The elder monk walked down to the riverbank and, after a short chant, tossed it into the murky, polluted depths of the slowly passing water, turning his back on the scene as the jar soaked the river water into its dry skin and sunk to the bottom. Mac returned to his home and tried his best to regain a sense of normality in his suddenly empty life. His wife, his love and his greatest friend was gone, along with their child he had barely known, if indeed he had known him at all. As days passed, he set about restoring his house to keep himself busy, placing one step ahead of the other, trying to move forward every day. There still remained rumours, whispers followed Mac as he passed through the marketplace. Some people were sympathetic, whilst others gave him nothing but looks of distrust. 
In the adjoined neighbourhood, two fishermen were out on their boat dredging the lake in the early morning when they pulled up a strange jar in their nets. Untangling the sodden brown bottle, they pulled open the stopper only to release a foul stench onto their boat. Disgusted, the man holding the jar dropped it back into the water, scrunching his face as the smell of decay clung to his face. He had, unknowingly, set free the spirit of Nack once more. Over the following weeks, she stalked through the spindle legs of the homes of Prakanong, terrifying locals who saw her greyed, pale visage sopping wet, stumbling through the night. This caused quite an uproar in the local area, and people were rushing to get home before sunset not leaving the safety of their homes again until daybreak. Something had to give, and eventually, after seeing the fear spreading through the locality, the monk Somdesh To took it upon himself to dig up the corpse of Nak from her shallow grave, her body now decomposed, lying in the ground as nothing but skeletal remains. He pulled a small oval of bone from the forehead of her skull and reassured the spirit of Nak that if she was to remain within the bone fragment, Mac would be reunited with her in the future once his time on earth was complete. Nack agreed and the monk kept the fragment inside a locket concealed in his waist cloth for the rest of his life. Nowadays the locket is lost but it is rumoured to have fallen into possession of the royal family at some point in time. Was the spirit of Nack a folk or fairy tale? The locals of Thailand would tell you otherwise. You can visit Maynack yourself. Her shrine, filled with clothing, toys, fruit, lotuses and incense, all given as offerings, is still situated in the rear of the temple of Wat Mahabat in Bangkok. Her visitors include many young women who visit her for luck, to ease childbirth and to offer aid in fulfilling their wishes that their boyfriends or husbands will not be called to military service. Every day, the tragic and terrifying tale of Nak lives on. I love that story when I first read it, so I had to include it. Next up, we've got a story set in Scotland during the 16th century, and it's got its roots in mid-19th century. Though it's also said that this version is a spin-off, or maybe a reboot, if you want to call it that, of a story that circulated England in the mid-16th century. Uh, Quite interestingly, it's kind of claimed that it was a... possibly a story written to be anti-Scottish propaganda, like way back in the day, but regardless of its original intentions, it's been kept alive throughout the centuries over kind of various names. So here's my interpretation of the story of Sawney Bean. Alexander Bean was born in East Lothian, just outside of Edinburgh, into a small and modest family. His father was a ditcher who worked tirelessly every day through hours of backbreaking labour to sustain his family. As soon as he judged his young son old enough, he took him out to work with him, teaching him the value of physical labour. Sawney Bean was not so keen on this idea, however, and after years of following orders from his father, he planned to take off from the village under cover of night to forge his own path, free from the daily grind of digging. As a child, he'd only made one friend in the village, Agnes Douglas, who had once been accused of witchcraft. The locals in the village never made life easy for Agnes, and so as soon as she learnt of Alexander's plans to run away, she made the decision immediately to join him and escape into a world of their own making. The pair walked south towards the coast, 
after camping in various locations, always being moved on from landowners and suspicious locals, the pair made a permanent home in a cave cut into the cliffside of Galloway Bay on the southwest coast of Scotland. Shunned as they were during their travels, the pair cast aside established society and lived for 25 years in the cave, raising children and their children's children. They robbed passers-by and travellers who strayed too close to the cave, murdering them both in order to keep their family's location a secret and to gain sustenance from the bodies which they dragged back to the cave, pickled in jars and ate. Soon the rear of the cave was filled from floor to ceiling with stained glass jars, stuffed with the severed limbs of their victims into murky green water. The family killed so often that eventually with an abundance of stored food, they took to casting the limbs, torsos and heads of their victims out to sea, where they washed up on the shoreline across the county. The travellers' disappearances were a troubling mystery, and the washing up of body parts that stretched along miles of coastline more so. Stories of sea monsters that would come out to feed and drag victims into the salty depths spread like wildfire. No one suspected Sawney Bean and his family, who killed all that met them, including many spies sent to discover the origins of the mysterious body parts. Any spies that returned had seen nothing suspicious at all, and those that did simply never returned to tell the tale. Panic soon spread throughout the west coast of Scotland, and the authorities began rounding up and arresting anyone they thought suspicious. Several innkeepers were hung merely for offering a bed to the missing, and it wasn't long before innkeepers throughout Galloway simply abandoned their premises to seek a different profession on the fear of similar reprisals. As the west coast of Scotland began to resemble a wasteland, Sawney Bean's family grew as more travellers fell into their hands while seeking shelter for the night. The family's children were feral in nature and they hunted in packs, cornering groups as large as five or six men on horseback, never allowing a soul to escape. Their home too grew and now it stretched for up to a mile underground. In the dark, the Bean family lived, feasting on the bodies of their prey. One night, a pack of Sawney Bean's grandchildren were out hunting when they happened across two people riding on horseback. It was a husband and wife, and was an easy meal for the voracious hunters. They ambushed the couple, pulling the woman to the ground, ripping her throat with their bare hands and drinking her blood like wine as it gushed from her neck. Upon seeing this gruesome scene, the husband flew into the pack of children on his horse, trampling several. He pulled out his pistol and sword and made short work of several more, running on the adrenaline of the situation. After slaying twenty or more of the bean children, losing his horse in the bloody brawl, he escaped on foot into the grassland and made for the nearest town. He fell exhausted at the local captain's feet and told of what he had seen out by the bay and of the Bean children who had feasted upon the body of his wife and horse in front of his eyes. Amazed, the captain allowed the man to rest for the night under protection of his guard, and then took him to Glasgow the next day to visit the king, where he asked the man to repeat all that he had told him the night before. The king had to act. The mystery of the lost of Galloway Bay was by now widely spoken of, and he seized his chance to appease his people. Gathering up 400 men and 100 bloodhounds, 
They returned to the scene of the attack, guided by the husband who had escaped death just four days before. The outfit searched for days up and down the coast but found no trace of the monsters who had killed the man's wife. They passed directly by the cave of the Bean family but paid it no mind until eventually, on the fifth day of their search, a bloodhound stepped inside the cave and began to bark. The king entered the black hole in the cliff face but could see nothing. He called to the dogs in the dark, though they continued to bark and would not return to the entrance. Slowly, the men began to file inside. The interior of the cave was so dark that no man could see more than six inches in front of his own nose. They crept deeper still, inching forwards in the gloom, their feet slipping on the damp, slimy rocks, and they ran their hands along the walls to keep themselves steady. Eventually, after finding no end to the cave despite moving inside several hundred feet, they called for torches to be brought to help them to see, and when the rags were lit and the flames flickered against the dank, salty walls, the crashes of the sea against the cliff fell silent. The air hummed as the sight of row upon row of pickle jars glistened in the soft orange light of the flames. Bleached body parts, bloated and unmoving, lay pickled in each jar, and hanging from the ceiling were the bodies of women and children, their dried skin hardened like jerky. At the foot of this scene of terror lay piles of money, gold, jewellery and other riches the family of Sawney Bean had amassed over the years. Swords, pistols, bags and linens lay in vast, disorderly piles. As the king and his men stood, mouths agape at what they had discovered, one of them saw a small movement in the shadows. He scooped up by the arm one of Sawney Bean's grandchildren. He was a young boy, now older than ten, the king would wager, though his eyes were sunken into his skull and his face was pale and filthy. His waxy skin clung to his cheekbones, his hair was a mess of tangled threads and he could speak no language that they could understand. They dragged him from the cave and tied him to a stake in the ground and then taking positions behind, they waited. One by one they captured the members of the Bean family as they crept out of the cave to seek the members of their family who had left and not returned, until eventually the king had the entire clan, including Sawney Bean and his wife themselves. Chained and tied, they rode them back to Edinburgh where they paraded the family, now 38 members strong, through the streets to the horror of the onlookers. They were jailed and then promptly transferred to Glasgow, where their execution was played out for going any trial. The men of the family were dismembered, having their arms and legs severed from their bodies and they were bled to death in the public square whilst the women were forced to watch. As the life left Alexander, now known across Scotland as Sawney Bean, his head slumped onto the concrete ground before him. He screamed into the crowd of onlookers, it's not over, it will never be over. But it was over for Sawney Bean. It was the last action that he could muster and he fell dead to the cheers of the onlookers. The women who had been forced to watch the executions were then strung to a stake atop a tall haystack and burned alive. Despite his last words, at least for now, the terror of Sawney Bean and his family was ended. Sawney Bean, absolutely brutal. So, to freshen it up round here, well, you know, 
as fresh as a Halloween episode on a podcast called Dark Histories is going to be. We're going to go to Japan next. I've spoken Japanese now for absolutely years and I've read tons of the old traditional Japanese ghost stories and I love them pretty much all of them. So I knew I had to include at least one in this episode. I flip-flopped for ages over which one to go with, um, but in the end I've settled with this one. This is a story set in the 16th century and is originally found to have been written in the 17th century. Um, But it has earlier links, even than that, to Chinese literature. Um, It's been celebrated in Japan in kabuki, which is kind of um, traditional Japanese theatre, film and literature. It's been adapted all over the place ever since. It's pretty famous in Japan. It's probably amongst the top sort of two or three most famous Japanese ghost stories. This one is called Botandoro. Or the Peony Lantern. The Japanese festival of Bon takes place in the heat of midsummer every year. It's a festival of remembrance, a time to honour one's ancestors, to visit their resting place and clean their altars. The spirits reunite with their surviving family members. Lanterns are hung in front of houses to guide the spirits home, and dances are performed with offerings of food placed at family altars. At the end of the festival, lanterns are floated down rivers and streams or cast out to sea to guide the spirits back to the land of the dead. Bon derives from an old Buddhist tale of a disciple who used supernatural powers to meet with his deceased mother. Far from his hopes, he found that his mother had fallen into the realm of hungry ghosts and suffered daily. Alarmed, the disciple asked Buddha for help and was instructed to leave offerings of food for the passing monks returning from their summer retreat. He did as he was instructed, and his mother was freed from her pain. At the same time, he became aware of all that his mother had done for him in her life, and overcome with emotion, he danced in happiness, starting the tradition of the Bond dance. Almost 500 years ago, during the Sengoku period, when states raged in vicious wars and power struggles across Japan, A man named Ogiwara Shinojo lived alone having been recently widowed. It was the first night of Bon, and as Ogiwara was returning home from the night of festivities in the local town square, he spotted a beautiful woman walking through the street with her servant at her arm. He instantly fell for the image of the woman shuffling along in her festival garb, the soft glow of candlelight from the peony lantern she carried scattered across the ground by her feet. Boldly he approached the woman, invited her to his nearby home. Silently she nodded in agreement and followed him there, staying the night before leaving as the candlelight in her lantern grew faint and the light of day threatened on the horizon. After she had left, Ogiwara missed her immediately. He had no name for the woman, she had passed from his life as quickly as she had come. It was to his delight then when the very next night he saw her once again walking across the town square with her servant, lantern in hand. He skipped to meet her and once again invited the woman to his house. After the death of his first wife, he had at last found a woman who could make him feel excited for the new day. Though the pain of her leaving each morning and the uncertainty of seeing her again caused him great anxiety, it all slipped away as he saw the candlelight of her lantern each night. Night after night he waited for her in the street and when he saw her his heart would race as he invited her home. His peculiar courtship continued for 20 days 
Each night he met the woman in the street and each night he would invite her home where he would spend hours enveloped in the joy of her company. Ogiwara began neglecting his daily responsibilities and cared for nothing else but to meet with the mysterious woman, reaching a point where he would only leave his home in the evenings to meet her on the street. His neighbours were becoming concerned with his condition. Though he seemed happy enough each evening as he emerged from his house and assured them that he was better than ever, they felt things were not quite right. The house directly next to Ogiwara's was owned by a wise older man who had taken note of his recent strange behaviour and had begun keeping an eye out for him. On the twentieth night of this bizarre courtship, the elder gentleman sat in his house and hearing laughter and raised voices coming from next door, he took it upon himself to see just who it was that had enraptured Ogiwara so. He crept up to the house and he heard his neighbour's voice loud and clear. He seemed happy enough as usual, and so he found a small hole in the wall of his home and peered inside. To his horror, the old man saw Ogiwara sitting cross-legged in the centre of his living room, embracing the skeletal remains of a human. As he spoke to the corpse, it cracked its bones, moving in jilted motions, and as it spoke, a haunting sound emanated from the pale jaws of the skull. The old man returned home as fast as he could, and at the break of dawn he headed over to see Ogiwara, slamming hard on his door. The house was by now empty except for Ogiwara himself, and when he opened the door, the old man could barely breathe for telling him of the image he had seen the night before. He begged Ogiwara to go to the temple at once and speak with the priest, that he might be saved. Taking the old man's advice, he somewhat confusedly went to the temple at the far end of town square to relay the old man's story and ask for advice. The priest gave Ogiwara a charm and told him that he must resist the woman. He was to place the charm in his house and never meet with her again. As he left the temple, despondent and confused, he stumbled across a grave marked with the name Otsuyu. Perched on top was a faded, discoloured peony lantern of the exact type that he had seen his newfound lover carrying every night. It was unmistakable. He had burned the image of the lantern into his mind, such was his excitement to see it every night, and now here it sat. The exact lantern, only here it was decayed, brittle and weather-worn. He returned home and hung the charm, accepting the old man and the priest's words as truth. As night fell, Ogiwara stayed in his house. He desperately wanted to meet with Otsuyu, but he knew he could not. It was agonising, and as each day passed, he missed her more and more. After several days, he could take it no longer, and he went to the local sake house to drink away his pain. Midnight came, and as his sake cup stood dry, he stood up and staggered out of the door into the street. He was drunk and the alcohol had only managed to increase his feeling of loss. He stumbled to the gate of the temple and there in the grounds of the cemetery stood his beloved Otsuyu. She silently approached him, took his hand and led him to her grave. As the days passed, the old man took note of Ogiwara's absence. He visited the temple to ask the priest once again for advice and the pair went to inspect the grave of Otsuyu. They noticed what looked like fresh marks on the stone, and they pried the lid from the sarcophagus. When they peered inside, they saw the dead body of Ogiwara 
with the skeletal remains of Otsuyu cradled in his arms. I absolutely love those Japanese ghost stories, but we're going to be moving back into this slightly less romantic now. We're going to Mexico next, with a story that has links as far back as the Aztecs. This is, of course, the story of La Llorona. Maria was born in a small, poor village in rural Mexico. She lived a humble existence, but life was relatively peaceful. The village she lived in was small and relied on farming to carve out an existence, and whilst in general the population was not well off, they were largely self-sufficient. Maria was the only child of her family. She took care of her ageing parents, fed the animals on their farm, and worked tirelessly to maintain the upkeep of her family's farmland. People in the village looked up to Maria and admired her dedication to her family along with her beauty that far outshone her peers. People from all the neighbouring villages knew of her and mothers would often introduce their sons to her parents in the hopes of securing such a wonderful daughter-in-law. On a calm summer's evening, Maria was returning home, walking through the village when she was stopped in her tracks by a travelling Spanish nobleman. He too stuttered as he introduced himself to her. Maria was taken by the man's charm, and he her beauty. For a time, he used trade as an excuse to visit the village and to see Maria, and the pair's relationship became closer. Eventually, realising the luck that he had had in finding her, he asked Maria's parents for their daughter's hand in marriage. Naturally, coming from a wealthy family and the nobleman seemingly being quite a gentleman, they accepted immediately and the couple wed. Life looked like it was on a constant up for Maria. The newlyweds moved into a house in the village together and while she still maintained her parents' chores, the pair settled down quietly, starting a family. Maria gave birth to three children in the following years. However, as they grew older, so did her husband grow distant. He began taking longer and longer trips to trade wares, leaving Maria at home for days on end, extending to weeks and months until he stopped returning at all. As quickly as he had come into Maria's life, he had left it. Now alone and with the burden of raising three children alongside taking care of her parents, Maria began to struggle. Her days became so full of chores that neglect crept in, either for her parents, her children or for herself. Her long, black, silken hair became matted and tangled, and her affection towards her children waned as she began to blame them for her husband's absence, until finally her patience snapped. As she walked home from her parents one night with her children in tow, crying for their mother's attention, she whipped around pulling a sickle from her waist. She slashed at the children, hacking into their flesh with the curved blade. As she cut and sliced, serenity fell upon her, and she concluded the bloody massacre by tossing the dismembered corpses into the river running by the roadside. Alone, dripping with blood and exhausted, she slumped onto the ground. The red crimson of her child's blood dripped from her face onto the dusty ground and mixed with the tears that soaked into the dry floor. Taking the sickle, she screamed at what her life had become and slashed at her throat, ending her life in an instant. As her body hit the ground, her spirit rose to the afterlife to accept judgement. Upon seeing the pain in Maria's heart, God sent her back to earth for a chance at redemption, 
though it came with a heavy price. She was to roam the riverbanks, dredging for the bodies of her dead children, and if she could find them, then they might enter the afterlife together as a happy family once more. For years, Maria searched the murky rivers around the village, eventually roaming far and wide. As she searched, she wept. She walked the riverbanks from the sources to the shores of distant seas. As hard as she searched, she never found a trace of the young infants. Nightly, she would cry, wailing into the cloudless sky. Her searches continued for years, and Maria grew desperate. Whenever she came across children on her travels, she would beg them for forgiveness and ask them if they had heard news of her own children. When they confirmed that they had not, she would anger and drown them in the shores of the river where she stood, in hopes of tricking the heavens into taking her in with the dead impostors in her arms. Always she was refused entry, and always she was resigned to return to continue her search. Maria never found her children, and still she searches. Her pale, ghostly image traipsing through the shallow banks of rivers, screaming into the night. Those that hear her cries call her La Llorona and know to run away. For if they do not return home in time, they too will suffer the scaly grip of Maria as she holds them under the water in the hopes that this time she will fool the gods. Alright, so to wrap up our little Halloween extravaganza, we're going to go to the cold, bleak winter of Iceland. This first appeared in print in about the 1860s and it is in my opinion one of the best from a country that has a serious history of creepy folk ghost stories this story is called the deacon of dark river one sort of cultural point of note that i should sort of say about this one when the ghost calls out the name of gudrun he actually mispronounces it in the original does it because the root of the name is means God in Icelandic. And in tradition, uh, ghosts can't speak the word God. So he, he pronounces her name, he pronounces it as like Galen or something rather than Gudrun. But in my version, I've kind of magically given him the ability to speak the word God. Um, so, you know, it's, it's written in English. So I was trying to basically just trying to avoid confusion. But I, I wanted to kind of point out a little cultural detail there. So yeah, this is the Deacon of Dark River. In the Hagaldalaf Valley of northern Iceland lay a small rural farm that went locally by the name of Dark River, so named for the large, steely cold river that carved through the fields and flowed quickly past the farmhouse, dancing and alive in the sparse landscape. The winters in the valley were bleak, and yearly the river froze over for months at a time, forcing an absolute muted stillness. Dark River Farm was occupied and ran by a deacon who enjoyed the tranquility of being in such a secluded location. His modest lifestyle suited his demeanour, and his relationships in the local community felt meaningful. The deacon was in a romantic relationship with a young lady by the name of Gudrun, a housemaid to the pastor who lived on a farm that sat on the other side of the river, parallel to his own. He frequently rode his horse named Faxi across the stream to see her. In the depths of winter, with Christmas approaching, 
the deacon decided to throw a party to celebrate on Dark River and jumped up onto Faxi to ride over and plan the affair together with Gudrun. The two spent the evening together discussing plans for the party and relaxing by the warmth of a cosy fireplace inside the maid's quarters of the pastor's farm. The weather had been quite difficult for some time and the river had been frozen over for months already. That night, however, was slightly warmer and the snow and ice had started to slow thaw. As the deacon and Gudrun discussed the various guests they should invite, the waters of Dark River shifted the layer of ice that sat on the surface with a tiny crack that rang out into the pitch darkness of rural midwinter. As the snow eased that night, the deacon departed from the pastor's farm on horseback to make his way home. The ice by now had begun to break and large chunks fractured and jostled along the flow of the river. Unable to cross at his usual point, the deacon made instead for the old bridge that sat upstream. It was slightly out of the way and rarely used, but a safer bet. As his horse stepped out into the old wooden construction, however, the rotten legs, not used to load-bearing, gave way. The entire structure slipped into the river, carrying the deacon and his horse with it. He was tossed out into the water, hitting his head in the fall on a large chunk of ice. His lifeless body slipped into the cold water and fought with the large chunks of ice to bump downstream. The next morning, a local farmer was out attending to his animals by the stream when he saw the body of the deacon washed up on a riverbank. His face was grey-blue, his dead eyes staring up to the still sky above them. He pulled the body onto the bank and he arranged with a local village for a burial to take place on the farm. Gudrun, however, remained ignorant of the accident, separated as they were by the dangerous river, now left without a bridge to cross. As the funeral passed and Christmas approached, she remained blissfully unaware of the sad fate of her beloved. And so it was that on the night of Christmas Eve, Gudrun dressed in her best outfit and sat awaiting the arrival of the deacon to her home. As she heard the familiar sound of the horse's hooves approaching in the dark evening, she excitedly jumped up, tossed on her overcoat, only wearing it on one arm as she ran outside and climbed up onto the back of Fancy. The deacon wore an overcoat with his collar turned up against the wind, his riding hat low over his eyes and a scarf tied around his chin. The couple rode silently through the night back in the direction of Dark River. As the stream approached, the horse tripped, sending the pair lurching forward. In the process, the deacon's hat fell off. It hit the snowy ground, the rim blowing gently in the wind. Neither Gudrun nor the deacon said a word. In fact, the deacon had not said a word since he had collected Gudrun. For her part, however, she was staring wide-eyed at the back of his head, mouth agape, unable to make a sound as she gasped in the cold winter air. The moonlight shone down from between the clouds onto the deacon's pale skin and glistened from what was clear to Gudrun, the bare skull of her lover peeking through a large, bloodless gash. Finally, the ringing silence was broken by the raspy voice of the deacon. The moon fades, death rides. Don't you see a white spot on the back of my head, Gudrun, Gudrun? He lashed at the reins of the horse and they galloped the rest of the way to the farmhouse. When they arrived, the deacon stepped down from the horse, 
Gudrun, still silent in terror, slipped onto the snowy ground. Wait here, Gudrun, Gudrun, whilst I move the horse over the fence, the fence. As the deacon ambled to the barn with the horse, Gudrun noticed a large open pit in the frozen earth, and next to it lay the grey headstone of the deacon. Finally she came to her senses as the shock of the situation tore through her. She turned to run, but the deacon grabbed her by the sleeve of her coat. It was fortunate that, until now, she had only pulled the coat around herself, and she had not placed her second arm into the sleeve, so as she pulled away, she escaped leaving the deacon holding nothing but the fabric of her coat. She ran out into the night, turning back towards the farm to see the deacon climbing into the open grave, just as the mud shifted around him, closing in the animated corpse of her dead lover. When she reached the gate for the farmland, she rang the handbell as hardened for as long as she could to signal for help. The same farmer who had discovered the body of the deacon heard the bell as it rang through the still night and collected Gudrun, taking her back to the pastor's farm. That night, as she lay in her bed, the boards of the wooden house creaked in the wind. Gudrun's eyes flicked from shadow to shadow in the room. The nights were dark, but the moon shone brightly and dim grey shadows cast through the window into her room, the shadow of a man wearing a hat pulled low over his eyes. For two weeks, Gudrun saw the same shadow casting out across her bedroom, but when she checked the window, there was no one there and the field outside lay barren and quiet. Eventually, as she tired from several weeks with lack of sleep, she consulted with the pastor who called for a sorcerer to perform an exorcism. Gudrun, the pastor and the sorcerer made their way to Dark River Farm and they solemnly cast the spirit of the deacon to his grave, finally slamming a large rock on top to hold him inside forever. As Gudrun mourned her lost lover in peace, the shadows disappeared. The rock has sat silently in the grounds of Dark River Farm ever since, holding the remains of the deacon in place until this very day. With that final creepy story, we about wrap up this Halloween special. So from me, I hope you all have a fantastic time celebrating Halloween, whatever you might be doing. Stay safe if you're trick-or-treating. Remember to avoid them razor blades, needles or whatever version of that particular urban legend you're familiar with. And as always, sleep tight. <laughs>